0: We have to ensure that everybody can serve on a jury, that there should be no economic barriers to serving on a jury. And that digital divide, whether it's the fact that in some parts of Montana or West Virginia or Kentucky, you can't get broadband. We've got to make sure that everybody, that we can expand the representatives of the jury service. Because you want people that serve on juries to say, it was fair because I was there.
1: I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. Today's guest is Mary McQueen, who's joining us as part of our week on Access to Justice. Mary is the president of the National Center for State Courts, also known as the NCSC. Mary, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. So Mary, first of all, I'd love to ask you about what is at the front of your mind right now?
0: Um, Before the last week, I was said the impact of coronavirus on the courts. Uh, but obviously, um, given some of the civil unrest and, and, uh, and, and the, the renewed focus on uh, uh, social justice, I would have to say that both of those and how they're uh, converging uh, is what keeps me up at night.
1: Absolutely. I think the events of the last week have been weighing heavily on, on all of us. And I want to talk more about that over the course of our conversation. But I'd, I'd love it if you could first explain to us what the NCSC does. Uh, you, you've got, number one, an incredible resource that I think is important that all of our listeners know about, whether you're a, a practicing lawyer or a, work at a bar association or, or maybe even a, a judge, it's, it's, it's an incredible resource, an incredible uh, center for some amazing work. Tell us, tell us about what you do.
0: Well, um, almost 50 years ago next year, the uh, 50th anniversary, um, then uh, Chief Justice Warren Berger met with the uh, state court chief justices. There's a conference like the National Governors Association or the National Association of uh, Attorneys General uh, it's called the Conference of Chief Justices CCJ for short. I just don't want to use acronyms without uh, prefacing with that what I mean. Uh, and they met uh, together to talk about creating uh, an institution or a location where uh, state supreme courts or and state courts could share lessons learned, information, they could identify research that that would in, that would uh, inform the decisions that they make. I, and I think it all happened at, at kind of a time when the the promise of separation of powers and having three branches of government that were equally uh, important uh, was really coming uh, to um, age. And what I mean by that is uh, up until, up until I would say uh, the, the 60s and the 70s, uh, state courts were still viewed as a, uh, a, an, a, an administrative agency under the executive, for instance, in the state courts. And, and what we've seen over the last 50 years is this development of judicial leadership, you know, whether it's in, uh, uh, in working with the other branches of government, uh, in developing uh, projects and uh, in, in improving access to justice. And so uh, the National Center was created. I am the fourth president uh, that has served at the National Center. I'm appointed uh, by uh, a board of directors that is always chaired by the president of the Conference of Chief Justices, uh, who happens to be Nathan Heck from Texas right now. And then there's a companion organization called the Conference of State Court Administrators, or COSCA. And that's those chief executive officers, state court administrators. And that's the, that's the uh, productive partnership of leaders that, at the state court level. I served uh, as the uh, uh, state court administrator in Washington State. I was there for 25 years before coming to the National Center in 2004. So we have a research division uh, where we have some incredible uh, uh, social scientists, political scientists, uh, PhDs. Uh, They tease me all the time that they have three letters after their name and I only have two. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: And uh, they've done a lot of of research about why do some courts uh, 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 dispose of cases more timely? Or what is it about... A particular case type uh, uh, that makes it more difficult to deal with. Uh, we do public opinion polls. You know, what do people think about their treatment in court? Uh, we've developed a series of trial court performance standards. We do education. Uh, we have a, um, a, a, a court services division in Denver that uh, actually is kind of what I call the SWAT team. So let's say, for instance, somebody was having uh, challenges with, their, uh, 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 with, with getting the requisite number of juries in. You know, we might go out and help them look at that. Uh, we have technology. We, we uh, look at technology. We issue white papers. We issue a series of uh, major research papers. So we're kind of like the FJC and the AO at the U.S. level, all in one.
1: And from your vantage point, Mary, you've, you've got an unbelievable perspective on what's going on across the the nation with, with the courts in response to the coronavirus crisis. Can you describe at a high level what you're seeing, especially in, in maybe some of the most uh, forward-looking jurisdictions in terms of how they're adapting to this new reality?
0: So Jack is, has referred to our website, and if you haven't seen it, I would really encourage even while we're together, um, if you have dual screens, if you have dual monitors, to look at our website, ncse.org, because when uh, when it was first determined uh, that there was gonna be this impact of a reduction in government services, and I say that because courts never closed. We're not like Starbucks, or we're not like um, uh, some of the schools, for instance. uh, We still have a constitutional responsibility uh, to provide access to justice. So we did have to begin to look at what were the challenges going to be uh, with uh, uh, you know social distancing or teleworking, or how we were going to uh, deal with uh, domestic violence civil protection orders. So the first thing we did on the website is to uh, to have all the chief justices in the in the country to submit to us uh, court orders, their their version of executive orders that were going to guide the trial courts uh, in the states uh, in uh, moving forward in this new uh, environment. So one thing that you can find on our website is um, you can go, the coronavirus page will be what you see when you first uh, uh, go to our website. And then there's a series of buttons, and one of them is uh, you know, uh, you know, how many states are uh, providing for uh, 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 cyber in-person appearances? How many are, uh, uh, how many are providing for um, uh, online oral arguments? And all those, you can see just the map, but then you can go to state-by-state profiles. Because as we all know, all state courts are not created equal. And in some states like Colorado, uh, California, uh, Florida, to some extent, have a lot of uh, what we call uniformity, where the chief justice may have broad authorities to make decisions about moving judges, about uh, waiving statute limitations. But in some states that uh, chief justice likes to call grassroots states. I call them decentralized states. Uh, like Texas, you know, like Georgia, Washington state even, uh, they're not state funded. Local trial courts still have a high, high level of authority to establish their own rules. And the courthouses are not under uh, the direct authority or the presiding judges, the trial court level of the chief justice. So, But even in California, we found that uh, the Chief Justice there had to get numerous uh, uh, executive orders from the governor to be able to make decisions about the best way to approach courts. Um, uh, Janet DeFiore in New York, uh, you know, working with Governor Cuomo there, had to negotiate uh, with uh, uh, the New York governor over what she needed to have in order to to operate the courts. So one of the things we've tried to do, and we have a rapid response team, uh, and we have a series of advisory committees on uh, post-pandemic planning to resume business that's looking at a variety of things, including what types of authorities going forward do chief justices need to have when there's a national emergency? And that could be whether it was a national disaster or a pandemic. Uh, I'll give you an example, Georgia is one. Uh, Chief Justice Milton in Georgia, when he was an associate justice, um, had uh, chaired the, um, um, uh, their uh, state committee on developing a uh, continuity of operation plan. We, we refer to those as coop plans and and this was this was um, several years ago, around the time that Ebola had reared its head and because that's a decentralized state um, he he does not have the authority to move judges to move people uh, to determine what types of cases might need to be. Um, given a higher priority with a reduced workforce. So they actually passed a statute in Georgia, giving the Chief Justice some emergency powers if there's been a a national emergency or a national pandemic plan. So one of the things that we're gonna be looking at is moving forward, what type of emergency authorities do we need? I'll give you another example of that. When Katrina hit Louisiana, uh, there was some question about whether the governor had the authority without the legislature being in session. And not only being a session, the governor couldn't find the legislators, you know, everybody was evacuating. And so the Chief Justice at that time, uh, based on that constitutional theory that if there's a gap between the statutes and the, you know, the the courts can fill those, and just made a decision. Nobody really um, uh, contested it because something had to be done. I mean, people were dying. We had people in prison that had to be um, yeah. removed. And, and so um, the acting chief justice at that time just made a ruling, and then we knew that there would probably be lawsuits down the road to figure out could have, should have, would have. So what we wanna do is take advantage of the lessons that we've learned during this pandemic to also look at what additional authorities, what, uh, what would we think would have made the court stronger, more responsive to the public if the chief justices had had some clear uh, statutory uh, authority laid out and what kinds of, of uh, decisions they could make.
1: So in so, other words, could the, the courts have been more agile in responding to this exactly. new landscape if, right. they're, if they had a different set of, of rights and, and prerogatives exactly. to make those, those yeah. moves?
0: And we're not, you know, we, we don't in any way. We want to be seen as a partner in this, uh, you know, the three-legged leg legged stool called the Three Branches, uh, sometimes I, I think it's sharing of authority, not really separation of authority. Because certainly the governor, you want the governor to, uh, to establish what those guidelines are, you know, like social distancing and encouraging people to telework. So it's not that, that, uh, that we want to usurp or change that, but if we had some authority to make decisions about uh, moratorium on fines and fees, moratoriums on evictions you you see what i mean i mean you know rather than that have to go through an executive or a legislative process right um,
1: just we need to move fast in, in an environment like this right can you talk a little bit mary about the the trends we're seeing at a macro level in terms of especially the technology that we're seeing courts adopt you you made a comment uh, in our, our in a previous conversation we had about the fact we're seeing um, years of change compressed into you know several several months here, can you talk a little bit about that perspective and and what that translates into in terms of actual change on the on the ground?
0: Uh, people that know me laugh because um, I'm I'm kind of a student of the Federalist Papers. I knew right. Hamilton before he became uh, you know a star, a but, celebrity, <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, But I would say that, um, you know, I would like to say that from time to time, I would say if Madison or Adams came back, they could still practice in our courts.
1: Right, they wouldn't miss a beat. uh,
0: The rules of evidence, uh, some of the practices that we have date back to the colonial period, pre-revolutionary period. Right. And, And so what I've seen, as as an as a silver lining if I could use that term uh to us having to be agile and that's not a that's not an adjective that you usually apply to either lawyers or judges (laughs) Um, that's true uh, is that I've seen more acceptance just by virtue of need necessity in the last three months than I would say in the last three decades and you're talking about judges who thought Zoom was not a mobile commercial, <laughs> and now we've got judges who are daily using Zoom for a variety of uh, not just uh, case-related, but administrative-related uh, processes.
1: Right. And how are you seeing the mindset change? Maybe are are you seeing what you view as a a permanent change in how the courts are thinking about technology have you seen people's minds change about the the impact technology could have and, and maybe the just in a foundational way how we operate the, the courts
0: and I think you could start with the Supreme Court the state Supreme Courts we've got over 40 jurisdictions that their oral arguments are on on a zoom or a WebEx or a virtual platform and they you know and and i think that that is going to i think part of that is be going to become um uh, one of the uh lessons that we that we retain um uh, and as far as i know no one's flushed the toilet during those um you know that <laughs> that was some of the concerns right you know with if you just have audio Uh, But we've also seen, but most of the state, if not all of the state courts and territories, live stream their oral oral arguments previously. So, you know, the camera in the courtroom issue uh, was not uh, not necessarily one of the challenges. One of the challenges you may recall early on when there started to be an increase in the commercial use of let's say the Zoom platform, because that's become kind of the platform of uh, preference uh, by courts, it was a privacy issue. I think some of you may remember reading uh, all articles of the paper. I have that's to give right. them a lot of credit that within 48, 72 hours of that, they had solved that problem. And so once the chief justices and their associate justices became comfortable, they started trying it. And what's interesting to me
1: Th- these were the were the privacy issues, the, the zoom bombing issue, that we saw right. f- crop up.
0: Yeah, right. somebody pop in, and well, that, there's a word for that. What, zoom zoom on. bombing. That's
1: right. Yeah. And we yeah. in fact just interviewed a couple of uh, experts on that topic uh, last week. And uh, again, you've, you you can solve that with uh, exactly um, and so pr- permissions right and away, passwords. We,
0: we started uh, we started hosting webinars. Sharing what we learned. So if you're going to go online for your oral argument, here's a checklist of the ten things you need to act, ask yourself, regardless of what platform. And just for all of you, um, uh, orientation for lawyers was one of the biggest, <laughs> the biggest criteria. Uh, and uh, I won't name the state, but uh, when they they would, you know, just like you did, Jack, you know, say, okay, if you need to test this out, go to this, uh, link and test it out. Uh, I, I think going forward in the future, that's going to be mandatory because we would have lawyers, law firms, say, Oh, we're cool. And then we would, we would start the oral argument. They couldn't, they couldn't like me today. Uh, uh, they couldn't get on as quickly as they should, or they, um, you know, they, uh, their their um broadband wasn't where it should be to have a clear picture those kind of things uh so so i think what what happened across the country is that as some of the jurisdictions were having positive experiences including the lawyers that appeared before them that was shared and and one of the one of the reasons, as I said earlier, for the creation of the National Center for State Courts was to be sh- able to share that information across the country and so i think I think it started i mean the the technological application started with the Supreme Court, and so as the Supreme courts became comfortable, then you had uh, then you had trial court judges that either they were concerned about their own health, they were concerned about the attorney's health that was appearing before them, they were concerned about the health of the litigants. So it's kind of like let's try a approach to what types of personal appearances can happen. And these were just standalone, you know, motions, you know, uh not not in anybody at that point was thinking about a trial. But then we have, you know, some of the the younger uh judges and court executives saying well why can't we do a virtual trial and so on may 18th texas uh performed the first as far as we know virtual trial and uh and what was interesting about it and i think that that where I think one thing that we can all embrace was the jury selection process. So think about resuming, resuming court. And, and most uh, states have uh, it either uh, had a moratorium or uh, delayed civil trials. So we're worried about this tsunami of trials that's gonna hit everybody, right?
1: Yeah, and, enormous uh, backlog.
0: Forming. Exactly. And, and, and if they're jury trials, think about the voir dire process.
1: Yeah, what, what does jury uh, selection look like?
0: 200 people coming into a courtroom in a jury assembly room, right? I mean, how is this going to work and us be able to socially distance?
1: Taking right? tiny elevators in old buildings yeah. up to these that are, that
0: are one at a time. That are 12 stories high. Right. And you can only put two people in the elevator. Do the math right?
1: Yeah. It's just impractical.
0: Right. So we decided, well, let's see how this works. Uh, And so some of the lessons we learned, so think, think about all of us have been in zoom meetings. So you have the panel, right? Of all the little pictures of everybody. The the gallery view
1: view of everyone in the zoom.
0: And, and you can only get what, maybe 24, or so I don't know what the maximum number is, but eight. Let's say eighteen to twenty-four. I
1: so they decided right, yeah. to
0: do the boy deer in two panels, and so you got a summons, and it would say, "Would you appear?" And you could check it off. What was interesting about this is uh, there was a presiding judge over the jury selection process, and then there was a technology judge who handled all the the you know, requests that people had to make sure they were on the Zoom call and that kind of thing. name's Judge Miskell in Texas. Really, really innovative judge. And she she laughed because her 800 number was, you know, if you have questions, call. Well, she would have these potential jurors call because they thought it was a scam. Really? Really? We're going to do jury selection online. And so it was kind of like you know, Christmas morning for all of us who were awaiting, you know, May 18th in Texas. And so it comes up, it looks like the Brady Bunch, right? You've got everybody up here. Um, You've got the two attorneys, you've got the presiding judge and you've got the the technology judge, as I'll call her. Um, And and it began just like any other jury selection process that all of us have uh, witnessed before the judge gave kind of, uh, the orientation to the jurors about, you know, um, if you, if you, uh, because you didn't want people because they were in their pajamas, like you, Jack, uh, leaving, uh, panel, you know? Right. And so, um, uh, and so they started with the questions and, um, and and it was the questions that you would, uh, 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 this was the the the, the case was a, a, between an insurance company and a claimant. The plaintiff uh, and so uh, the plaintiff's attorney would ask, you know, d- how many of you have uh, insurance policies on your house or your car? Where you? So they all raise their hands. But what was it, and then they would ask other questions. Have you ever filed a claim? You know the ones that we all think about. What was interesting to me though, was that the introductory questions that you usually have from the judge, is there anyone who cannot serve on this jury? Not one person raised their hand. And those of us that were watching thought, my gosh, this has never happened before.
1: The other And, thing and you was, would benchmark this against what would a normal rate yeah, look yeah, like? That This yes. is zero compared to typically 20% or right. what would you?
0: Exactly. And, and, and I think, um, what was kind of interesting was, if you just looked at the panel, it looked very inclusive by age, by race, by gender. And after we went through uh, the voider process, and if you have any questions procedurally, how that went, I can answer. But to get to the, um, the, the assessment at the end where we asked them questions about the experience, all of them said they would do it again. And maybe a third of the panel had served as jurors before, and their observation was that they could see the they could see the evidence better. Just think if you have documents you know yep. they could see those much better um, that uh they could see each other because they did go to deliberation um uh, they uh, they said they were also asked, well, how many of you?" Would have requested an excusal if we hadn't done this online, and and you know there were about half of them that said that they would not have come to the courthouse because of being concerned about safety, and I'm talking about you know social distancing having to wear right. a mask and all of that.
1: But I'm sure there's and, a decent number of those that wouldn't have come even post-pandemic because of the inconvenience of attending the physical trial.
0: Right. Uh, and, and and some of those said that they would do it now because coming to the courthouse was inconvenient. When we talked earlier about uh, what keeps me up at night and we mentioned social justice. Yeah. I don't know that we think of jury services being economically disenfranchised groups. And what I mean by that is because unlike National Guard duty, there is not a requirement for employers to provide people with jury leave. So if you happen to work for an employer who does not provide for jury leave, it is economically preventative from you saying, I can afford to take one or two or three days off from work, drive down to the courthouse, park, and participate on a jury. And so we actually believe that by looking at at least the, the, the jury selection process being cyber. I mean, it's something that perhaps all of us could agree on under certain conditions, that it will expand the inclusiveness of the jury pool. So one of the things we're working on right now is uh, with five states, we have a pilot, uh, is trying to bridge the digital divide like education is. You know, you hear all the time about Well, schools are going to provide this education online, but you have this group of students who either don't have a device or they don't have broadband connectivity at home, right? Same thing you could say applies to uh, people serving on juries. So we're working with some of our national uh, uh, corporate partners that if you don't have a device or you don't have broadband coverage, we'll provide that for you. And with the devices, it could be rather than having to come down to the courthouse, you'd go to a local library or community college, or uh, you know a meeting room at you know Target or Walmart. I'm just trying to, you know, and and that then we would have uh, laptops or tablets there that you would be asked to arrive at a certain time to participate in a voideer panel panel. Um, so we believe that. Um, that, that looking at um, at least the jury selection process cyberly uh, and because we want some metrics, we want to be able to say how the lawyers feel about it, how did the jurors feel about it, just the jury selection process, uh, uh, that, that we're going to try to move forward with that. And, and then hopefully uh, there are, and, the, and the, the five states that are participating in that are Texas, Georgia, Florida, Arizona, New Jersey, and Michigan. New Jersey, for instance, still has grand juries. So they're going to look at it for the grand jury selection process. Uh, One of the interesting things I would say about deliberation, uh, uh, most of us, well, have two monitors, because especially if you're on a Zoom meeting and there are a lot of documents, you've got a Dropbox. And so you don't want to leave the Zoom meeting, but you want to be able to look at the documents we hadn't anticipated that uh for the jury deliberation and so some some of the jurors wanted to be able to look at a document that the judge had said you could look at but when they tried to access it through the drop box because they only had one monitor it dropped them off the zoom call
1: right right so you 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 need to find a way of replacing
0: And, and so we also think, and in some states, you know, you have a bailiff or someone who is kind of assigned to the jury during deliberation. So if they want things, you know, we think that you're going to have to have, whether it's a, 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 a court employee, that somebody needs to be there to help them if there are any technological uh, issues that arrive during uh, deliberation. But on the whole, uh, the, the, the lawyers that participated as well as the jurors thought it was great.
1: So, Mary, so interesting. We, we had Richard Susskind on the show a, a couple of weeks ago, and as you know, he, he talks about this concept of the courts being a service, not, yes. not a place. Right. And it sounds like in at least some jurisdictions, this future that we thought was maybe decades away, if it would ever be realized, of courts being completely virtual and, and happening over a virtual conference call, over a video call, uh, that's here today. And... And it sounds like the reception from judges uh, and jurors and, and and the the lawyers representing uh, their clients is actually very positive overall. Are, are, are you hearing anything on the on the negative side uh, or any feedback that you think we need to incorporate into the, what the next iterations of this look like?
0: no i think I think as lawyers, we need to to say, okay, we can, we're really good at identifying the differences in cases and, and uh, evidence. And, and I think we're good at, at looking at constitutional rights that need to be protected. And what we have to think of, is there another way to do that than we've done before? I'll give you an example. Uh, the issue that always, always comes up when we talk about criminal trials, Cyberly is the confrontation clause, right? Well, what was the definition of confrontation in 1776 versus today? You know, what was behind the confrontation clause? What was our reason for thinking that was so important? And how could we provide for those same kinds of constitutional uh, protections in, in cyber space, for instance? and i mean and there've been a lot of discussions about what that might look like right uh and so i think uh, but but for instance um, in in child abuse and neglect cases where you have a young victim who's been uh abused by the defendant allegedly abused by the defendant uh there have been uh practices where this the, the young victim is actually uh, 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 questioned in the judge's chamber, without the defendant being physically in the room, that has withstood the maybe. test of the con- confrontation clause uh, uh, challenge.
1: Okay. So I
0: think we just have to think about that, and and um, and maybe you know we can find you know uh, attorneys that are willing to work with their um, uh, clients to see how that might work. I think the other thing is the, um, the humanity or the, hum, human, the human aspect of questioning jurors, right? Right. And I have to tell you, um, it was really interesting to see these two attorneys uh, question the panel. There was some age difference, there was gender and racial difference between the two attorneys. And one, one attorney was very traditional, very friendly, you know, follow-up questions. Uh, the other attorney, the first thing she said to everybody is said, "Well, now just sit back, take a deep breath, and pretend this is Jury Survivor Island." <laughs> well, you could see everybody immediately. I want to be. I don't want to get voted off the island, right?
1: They get it. They understand exactly uh, what that
0: absolutely. Is. But I'm just saying. I think it. I think as we. As we move forward, we'll learn things. So, for instance, after they had had the, the, uh, the questions, you know, it was, okay, so if let's say if you want to approach the bench for a bench conference, how do you do that in a Zoom environment? And we hadn't really thought that through, so it took a, a couple of minutes for Judge Miskell, the technology to judge said, Well, I'll just create a Zoom workroom and send the two attorneys and the judge to the Zoom workroom. Right. Right. And everybody else just stayed uh, in the Zoom call.
1: And and Mary, you shared with me a a link and we can maybe put this in the show notes, but there's, there's actually a a YouTube link that you shared of this virtual jury selection. Jury
0: selection. Yeah. And so, so I'm glad you, you raised the YouTube issue. So you were saying what some of the pushback we get. Another pushback we've gotten from uh, different uh, advocacy groups is Uh, You know, most state constitutions provide for open courts, right? Okay, how are you going to do that in a virtual environment? Well, Texas decided to do that by using YouTube. And so anybody that wanted to could see YouTube. Well, people that uh, uh, you know, represent uh, allegedly undocumented workers or uh, victims of domestic violence said that, you know, having everybody be able to see their clients on YouTube created a security concern because it's different from somebody having to get in their car and come down to the courthouse, right? Versus just being able to get on YouTube and seeing what's going on.
1: Yeah. Uh, Open courts meaning Exactly. Anyone in the immediate vicinity can attend versus the billions of people on the internet uh, can, can see this on YouTube.
0: And they shut down that YouTube, uh, uh, you know, link. We agreed because this was kind of a test case to be able to share it. But the question is that once you had, let's say, a cyber jury trial or a jury selection, would you not make it available?
1: Right. That, throw, this, you know, I, I would encourage everyone listening to check out this YouTube link. We'll we'll make, we'll make available in the show notes because it does show that the technical judge you're you're referencing walking through this this very. Uh, precise process of setting everyone up in in the same way, making sure everyone's phone is in landscape versus portrait mode and, and helping everyone out. And it's a good, I don't know, half hour of almost technical calibration before proceedings really get underway. So Mary, I'd like to conclude our conversation. This has been so informative and so useful, but uh, in a previous interview, I heard you mention the fact that you are guided by Alexander Hamilton's remark, and you talked about being a fan of the the founders earlier, uh, that nothing contributes more to the public's respect and esteem for government than the effective administration of justice. Uh, and, And we're obviously over the last week seeing that some of the structural inequalities that exist in our society are causing an, an uprising where maybe that uh, that respect and esteem for the government is not there in the way that we would hope to, to see. You've, you've talked over the course of our conversation about how maybe this technological transformation that's happening in the courts actually improves access and improves the diversity of jury pools and helps level the, the playing field across different racial and economic groups to be able to access all aspects of the, the court system. Can, can you talk just for a, a moment about what you believe the, the opportunity is in all of this and what you might hope to see the enduring impact of the, as you describe, the silver lining of this coronavirus pandemic on what the continuing administration of justice might look like?
0: Uh, I think, you know, I've, I've talked generally about the inclusiveness you know, increasing the access opportunity. But I also think that especially uh, given some of the frustration that we've seen played out in the streets across the country in the last week, it's listening to people. I think uh, sometimes we call it procedural due process. Even though, let's say, in a... uh, 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 marriage dissolution case, and, and you're a no fault jurisdiction. And, and there's really just, just give me your names and let me sign the paper on the judges. Side. Sometimes people need to process, they need to tell their story. And I think that, that, that if we're going to uh, retain the public's trust and confidence in the court systems, and in justice, we have to, they have to be heard. We can't just have kind of this grocery store revolving door of uh, you know these, these high volume dockets. And so I think by people not having to drive to the court, by, uh, by us being able to, to make uh, the, the appearance in front of a judge uh, less of a challenge, we'll have more time on the judicial side to listen and we'll give, we'll give um, citizens on the other side, the opportunity to actually be in front of a judge. Um, one, I mean, most of you probably are familiar with drug courts as a concept. Well, drug courts, you know, one of the, the key uh, criteria of drugs court is that weekly appearance before a judge. We think everybody says that's one of the key uh, L- metrics uh, to the success. Well, how are you gonna do that? During a pandemic, phone, FaceTime, right? You know how can you do that? And so we've we have experience with that. Um, I think also, uh, you know, when we've when we've heard some of the the vocal frustrations in the last week, it's been uh, starting with law enforcement and and right. and, and uh, uh, the standards for use of force. Then it was the prosecutorial charging standards. So yep. what's next? The jury. Yep. We have to ensure that everybody can serve on a jury, that there should be no economic barriers to serving on a jury. And that digital divide, whether it's the fact that in some parts of Montana or West Virginia or Kentucky, you can't get broadband. We've got to make sure that everybody, that we can expand the representatives of the jury service yeah. because you want people that serve on juries to say it was fair because I was there. And so I think that when I when I quote Hamilton, I think that the entire criminal justice process may be able to resurrect the public's trust in it if we can ensure that the court the court piece is where they have hope that they can say it was fair because i was there
1: that's a great note to end on mary there's so much more we could talk about and i i do believe we'll need to have a follow-up conversation but i really thank you for sharing your perspective today it was so useful and uh, look forward to chatting with you again.
0: Absolutely, keep safe.
1: You too. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal and Derek Bolin and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com.